Welcome to the OMR Podcast International. I'm your host, Scott Peterson, Digital Marketing Editor at OMR. Today, we have a very special guest joining us, someone not only privy to the inner workings at a Silicon Valley behemoth, but someone who for years was instrumental in the decision-making process at Google, Sridhar Ramaswamy. Sridhar spent 15 years as Senior Vice President of Advertising and Commerce at Google, aka the department at Google tasked with making all of the money. Now, Sridhar is active as founder and CEO of Neva, an ad-free and subscription-based search engine, which also recently launched in Europe. We spoke at length about his time at Google, how search evolved, various monetization approaches, what ultimately led to Google separating itself from the competition, and how exactly a giant company like Google approached balancing ethical considerations with stakeholder interests and product innovation. We also, of course, discussed his latest venture in Neva and why he's quite bullish on the prospects for success of a privacy-first and user-centric search, despite the fact that he's now a direct competitor of his former employer. All of that and more in the Omar podcast right now. Buzz. All right. Well, I am pleased right now to be joined by Sridhar Ramaswamy, founder and CEO of Neva. Sridhar, good morning. How are you doing? Welcome to the Omar podcast. Hey, Scott. Super excited to be here. I'm doing well. Excellent. Um, so as I mentioned in the intro, uh, you are the former uh, senior vice president of advertising and commerce at Google, now the founder and CEO of Neva, an ad-free and uh, subscription-based search engine, which also recently la launched in Europe, which is where we are based. And I'm really looking forward to diving into your experience uh, at Google as a high-ranking exec and into what you're building at Neva. Both are absolutely fascinating topics for different reasons. But um, I would like to start with uh, going a little bit right before uh, your time at Google, because as someone who has reached the upper echelon in Silicon Valley, I'm, I'm kind of curious as to how your journey there began. Yeah, I actually joined Google as a, a software engineer. Uh, this was early 2003. Uh, didn't really want to be uh, in management or lead teams or anything like that. Uh, it was an incredible opportunity. It was uh, an incredible time overall in the Valley, just in terms of how much growth we saw, how much impact we were having on the world. Um, uh, over the years, I did turn back to uh, management, started leading the search ads teams, and then more and more of the ads teams. And yeah, my last job at uh, Google was leading, the uh, on one hand, the ads and commerce teams. On the other hand, uh, a set of infrastructure teams that powered search were in charge of privacy. So it was a very broad, sprawling role um, involving a $100 billion business and a 10,000-person team. Those are both staggering numbers, uh, to say the least. Um, I do have a question also about um, your uh, on, on your LinkedIn profile. You have a mission statement or kind of a leitmotif which, um, uh, for your profile, which is that you are a technologist and a humanist focused on harnessing the power of software for the larger good. Could you elaborate on that for me, please? 100%. Uh, um, Google was an amazing journey. Uh, and, uh, you know, we never thought that Google would make like $100 billion in revenue or become a trillion-dollar company, all of those things. Um, but as it started succeeding more and more, uh, in a strange way, I felt that we were too successful, um, that the enormous benefits of scale, whether it is machine learning or cloud infrastructure or CPUs getting, you know, better, faster, 
um, we're being monopolized by a few in the Silicon Valley. At the end of the day, there aren't that many owners of Google, that many shareholders. I felt in particular that the advertising model um, first sort of trapped people into free products um, and then slowly but surely um, cranked up the ad load on them in a way that much of the benefit of the scale technology went to companies, went to the creators of the software. And uh, at a deep level, I felt that this was unfair. I'll make this very concrete. Um, Google makes over uh, $60 billion uh, of revenue every year, every year, just in the United States, just on search ads. That's like 150 bucks of head tax per person, um, you know, per living person in this country. Um, and there are similar numbers in the EU as well. Um, I, I, I felt like, you know, sort of original capitalism, which is about, yes, make products at scale. Um, and as things get larger, things also get cheaper and better. We are living in this strange world where products like Google Search are honestly, even Amazon, are actively getting worse by day. On Amazon, you can't tell what is an ad versus what is a product. Same on Google. More and more of the page is about advertising, is about making money. Um, and uh, so I care deeply about that. I feel like the sort of current social disparity in this country and other places is because fewer and fewer people are getting more and more of the benefits that things like technology create. Uh, a core mission of Neva is to create products that are aligned with users so that as we grow, the product gets better, the product gets cheaper. And that's always how capitalism has worked. You know, TVs were unaffordable, microwaves were unaffordable, cars were unaffordable when they first came out. And yet all of us can have them because as things scale, they get cheaper and better. So picking up on uh, the fact that uh, Google just was no longer um, focused on the user so much, that that really was not like it was back in the in the time when you started uh joined google back in 2003 um there were there was a, a more of a spirit of innovation there was a more of a focus on the user back at that time was there not uh absolutely there was and it's a well-intentioned company you know early on um we had landed on such an amazing product such revolutionized advertising as you know mm -hmm. uh, because here were people coming and telling you what they were interested in Advertisers had never seen anything like that. So the growth was um, incredible. And uh, just the amount of uh, uh, wealth and value that that generated for Google and everybody involved with it um, was enormous. But, um, you know, things saturate. Everybody that could search is searching. Everybody that can have a smartphone has bought one. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so the only way to make uh, more revenue um, is either by showing more ads or by charging more. And it turns out, after a point, you can't really charge more because advertisers don't make any money with the advertising. And so that also, you know, like becomes restrictive at some point. Um, mm -hmm. And so the goal is on uh, more and more ads, uh, funnier and funnier labeling. Um, and it's really this relentless drive for progress um, that makes it like harder and harder to focus on user. And the other thing that we also need to remember is that very quickly companies reach um, a point where they have real innovators dilemma. One of the things that I want um, to talk to you about Neva is we are on mm -hmm. the brink of a bunch of really incredible, exciting changes driven by AI and large language models. And the likelihood that Google is going to uh, put its advertising model at risk just because you can do something very, very different with technology is also very, um, is low. Uh, so Google is a victim of its own success. It is the classic innovator's dilemma.
Fair enough. And do you think that because um, they were so successful, they just felt the pressure internally to constantly continue on a path of monetary growth as opposed to product quality and that stifled innovation? I think every company feels that, um, meaning that the entire premise of uh, most companies, especially over the last 20, 30 years, is sort of growth at all costs. It mm-hmm. is just that, um, uh, you know, with, I don't know, if you're making cars, you reach a limit. Like you, people are not, if people don't buy uh, the cars that you make, you realize that that's not a smart move and you cut back on the number of cars that you make. Um, advertising and the online world are magical <laughs> in, I, mm-hmm. I mean that in sort of a pejorative way, in the sense that there is literally no limit to the number of ads that you can show. And that's why you see more and more screens of ads when you search or when you go to you know, Amazon or any of the other sites, so on. Uh, and uh, it's really this ad model that makes us believe that, the, that we can keep like uh, whatever, getting more and more from the golden goose, so to say. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, was there kind of like a, a, a negative aha moment or a eureka moment for you where the the focus just shifted so starkly from the user focus to more the data accumulation focus to the to the maximization of, of profit focus at Google? Or is it more of a, a, a subversive kind of uh, a subtle process, that, a subliminal process that you just could only really kind of recognize in retrospect? Yeah, that is one of my toughest learnings in life, um, where a series of small, all seemingly okay decisions can still end up um, in something cumulatively that honestly you're just not proud of. There came a point where I realized that, um, you know, I had been one of the people that had helped create the massive surveillance-based advertising networks that dominate our lives so much. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a very, very subtle uh, kind of process. There were a few stark moments. Uh, YouTube monetization went through a lot of uh, lot of stress, um, and it became the vector uh, for funding the creation of lots of dubious content. And so mm-hmm. we went through several years, 14, like 15, 16, 17, where more and more of this kind of egregious content was found. Um, and there were cases where I was like, you know, um, this is just sort of distasteful, and this reliance on... Uh, you know, growth at all costs uh, and advertising is really producing toxic mixes. Um, so mm-hmm. there were things like that. But on the whole, when it comes to things like search, it's a very slow, insidious process from we are a user-first company to we need to monetize at all costs and keep monetizing more and more. And so like when these these very, I guess, I imagine at the time they were kind of perceived as maybe granular, important, uh, but maybe still like very minor tweaks to the system, to the algorithm, to the to everything. Um, That's right. What, what are these decision-making processes like? I mean, you as somebody who is a high-ranking exec there, you are, your, your voice had to have had like a certain influence with it. I'm just like really kind of curious. I mean, obviously you can't plan for every permutation, every possible outcome, um, but it does, I mean, you were privy to those conversations. So I'm just kind of curious, like how do these kind of decision-making processes take place on the inside? I mean, there are uh, very good processes. I Mm -hmm. was the person directly responsible for approving quite a few of the decisions that increased um, ad load. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, uh, people like Philip, uh, who ran the business team, and I had an enormous amount of influence over how these things, how these things worked. Um, Mm -hmm. But as I said, it is also one of these processes 
where you can have good intentions, um, but if the stated assumptions are, um, you know, the need for revenue growth um, mm-hmm. and the need for just like, you know, continuous, continuous growth, you end up making a series of decisions um, that look fine at the micro. Um, and sure. at the macro, you wake up one fine day and you go like, gosh, this is unpleasant. And then you realize, wait, mm-hmm. there's no way out of it. Okay, yeah, that uh, makes sense. You One day you wake up and you realize that your baby has turned into Frankenstein, so to speak. Maybe that's slightly exaggerated, but um, uh, I do understand exactly what you're trying to say. Um, but uh, So you spent 15 years uh, yep. in total at Google, the last five, maybe six of which is where you were actually leading the, the ads team. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. All right. That's right. That's right. Um, which, by the way, let's uh, go ahead and call a spade a spade. The ads team is uh, the department that was primarily responsible for all the money at Google, uh, uh, for the most part, at least. But pretty um, much all of yeah. the profit, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, just curious, and this is going to be the hard segue into Neva. Um, yep. What was the catalyst for you to leave Google? Um, because as you said, like you were you you were uh, responsible for a lot of these decisions to increase ad load. Um, was there, yeah, this uh, this uh, a moment that made it that just completely had uh, soured you on ads? What was it that kind of caused you to to leave Google? Um, sixteen years is a long time to spend at any place, um, and uh, you know, and so I wanted a clean break. Mm-hmm. And there's a part of me, you know, all of us are insecure about various things. There's a part of me that wondered whether all of my success was simply uh, an outcome driven by the fact that I was at Google mm-hmm. uh, and whether I could do interesting things with my life myself. So it's a little bit, you know, I've always liked uh, uh, challenging myself to do things uh, newly, differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I needed to sort of reset my life and uh, move on and go ahead um, and do something else. I actually moved to a venture capital firm, and I still have an association with Greylock Partners, one of the best firms that there is in the world sure. uh, of venture capital. Um, but I came to the conclusion after having a series of conversations with Vivek, my co-founder, uh, that my heart was really in creating products. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, he and I brainstormed a whole lot of ideas um, and then came up with this idea of a user-first search engine. Um, and we got incredibly excited by what was going to be possible if we only had the user as a focus. So a lot of the details of how Neva is structured came from that fundamental desire uh, to truly create a search engine that was about you. And we felt like, you know, 20 years into 20, 25 years into the creation of the internet and the search engines, um, it was time for a dramatically different point of view about what a search engine could be. Mm -hmm. Um, And in many ways, Neva is the sort of ongoing realization of the dream uh, to create a wonderful, delightful product and capture a lot of like the early magic of Google. Sure. And uh, well, if you are uh, one to uh, be inspired and motivated by a challenge to do things and to do them differently, um, I couldn't think of, at least in the digital space, a bigger challenge than taking on Google <laughs> um, and to, quote unquote, re- reinvent search. Um, so uh, by, by going ad free and subscription based and um, maybe now is the perfect time um, to uh to dive deep into Neva, what exactly is it um, at its core, would you say? Uh, Neva at its core is a user-first search engine. What we mm-hmm. mean by that is there is a relentless focus on what you need. 
Um, I would say that things like, you know, being private are, are a consequence um, of this user focus. What does this mean in practice? Um, this means that we try to be aspire to be more educational. When you look for a product, we are not dying to get you off to the first retailer site where you can buy the product. Um, mm -hmm. We are happy to show you reviews. We are happy to get, help you gather information that'll help you make better decisions. Um, mm -hmm. If you have a health query, uh, and health queries are particularly sensitive topics that people put into search engines, whether it's a headache or whether we are depressed or having trouble, you know, with, with a close friend or relative, all of these go into search engines. We help you find authoritative information. Um, we help you distinguish between results, <clears throat> say, from the NIH or the <clears throat> Mayo Clinic mm -hmm. um, from one that comes from a site that is primarily ads-driven and wants to grab more and more of your time. Uh, if you want a different viewpoint on news, we make it super easy for you to see a left-leaning view versus a right-leaning view or pick the news that you care about. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> I grew up in a family where my dad was super particular about which newspaper he read every day. A okay. lot of us have these preferences. So it's really that focus. It is more personalized. Um, it is more looking out for you um, than pretending that we know like some absolute truth um, or trying to get you off to another website as quickly um, as we can so that we can make money. It's none of that. It is that focus on how do we get you the information that you need to make better decisions in your life. All right. Well, this is uh, then where we get into the kind of this delicate balancing act between privacy and utility, I would uh, yep. imagine. Um, so, I mean, obviously, to provide users with relevant answers, you need to know at least something about the user, about what they're looking for. And obviously, uh, there's, a, there's a feature um, also, which is, I, I think, fascinating and, and great in Neva, which uh, allows you, gives you, the user, a little bit of control to kind of deprioritize certain results, things that uh, that you don't feel find them to be relevant. Relevant. So, um, and you collect, and I would imagine at least retain this information for a certain period of time. I believe it's something like ninety days. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but uh, there has to be. There's a certain threshold of information that you need to have from the user, which kind of creates, yeah, like I said, this delicate balancing act. Um, where do you, um, where do you fall on that? How do you, how would you kind of explain it to me? Um, balancing utility and and uh, privacy. Yeah. Uh, first and foremost uh, is you're in charge. Uh, and all default choices that we make are things that are going to be uh, clear and obvious to a large group, uh, you know, to, to people. What I mean by that um, is uh, by default, we don't actually have any search history. So we don't keep 90 days of uh, search history. We don't keep okay. any search history. It turns out that the search query itself is a very strong indicator of what it is that you are um, that you are looking for. Okay. Um, if you do have preferences, if you say like I don't want to see Amazon in my results, or I don't want to see this other newspaper in my results, um, deprioritize it. When you have good results from other places, yes, we retain that information about your preferences. Mm -hmm. All of this is in the context of a business model that is stridently pro-user, um, which is. We don't show ads. We don't show affiliate links. We don't package up and sell any data whatsoever. And as I said, we don't even collect data. So 
If uh, um, So there's no way, for example, for us to get hacked and say, hey, Scott ran these queries because by mm -hmm. default, search history is off. We don't even associate the queries that you run um, with your account. Uh, but because we are a subscription service, you know, when you um, uh, sign up for the premium version, um, you do put in your credit card number, let's say, and that's retained by a payment processor. In our case, that is Stripe. Uh, so we try to do the, we try to have the bare minimum that we need to mm -hmm. create an amazing service for you. You can turn on search history. Um, that unlocks a set of features, including things like recommendations. Some people do it. Uh, many people don't, and we're perfectly okay with that. This is the beautiful thing that comes from having that focus on the user. We you know, did a bunch of extensive research. We used to have a default of 90-day search history, but then we realized that that's not what people wanted. People did not want their search history uh, to be remembered anywhere. So we changed the default. This um, mm -hmm. we actually did as part of the Europe launch. And so the really nice thing about Neva is what you see is what you get. Search is a daily use important function um, and uh, we want to provide a high-quality, low-cost, worry-free service. There are no gotchas or gimmies um, with Neva. So um, uh, let's uh, dive down then a little bit in more uh, the the product specifics. So, what exactly does Neva search through? It, um, it will search through uh, my my email, my 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 what else? My my not my search history, but I can connect some accounts. Yep. Um, and other documents that I have, I guess, on my laptop, maybe. Um, what what are what are some of the actual things that it does search? Yeah. Uh, so by default, when you just go to Neva.com, you don't have an account. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's say it just searches the public web. What is visible to all of us? Okay. Um, I said you can um, set up an account, become a subscriber. Uh, in which case you can do things like set preferences. Um, you uh, are then also able. Uh, to do things like connect your personal accounts, whether it's a Dropbox account or a Microsoft or a Google um, account. Remember, mm -hmm. this is an optional feature. Um, sure. Not everybody uses it. It's like power users that use it. I use it. Um, you mm -hmm. know, my team created the product. So we that makes it super easy, um, for example, uh, to search for, hey, I have uh, um, an upcoming podcast coming with Scott, um, where's the briefing doc that has details about the podcast? And so um, I'm able to search over that kind of personal um, information, but that is because I've actually explicitly asked Neva to do that for me. Um, by default, And I would not um, have access to that document because it's not shared publicly. 100%. Um, okay. So whenever you connect your personal accounts, um, we pay attention, obviously, uh, to things like, you know, who has, uh, whose document is this? And we are never going to mix up, show one person's document to uh, to another person. Um, fun early Neva fact, I was the one that actually wrote like a test framework for making sure that we would never mess up, um, you know, these these sort of permission, um, mm -hmm. permission issues. Um, and so... Your search, if you choose uh, to connect these accounts, uh, now gets augmented um, with documents from your personal repository. Um, and it's actually people at work uh, that want to be able to search over everything um, mm -hmm. that uh, you know use features like that. Um, the default product is super simple. The next level is an account and more personalization. And then the follow-up level is like being able to connect to your personal account so that you can search all over them. All of this is in a context of a relentless focus on what's right for the user. Your data is yours. 
only mm-hmm. used to make your searches better. Um, and so, you know, the entire motive of the company is around creating a great search product for you, Scott. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, but I, I do have one question about like this um, this strident focus on the user um, and their needs, uh, um, and it, it's it's fantastic, and I I love the spirit behind it. But is there a danger of an echo chamber effect coming into into effect um, where all of the information that I am getting is something that is just that that I already know? Um, that I'm not being exposed to kind of new ideas. And where I'm trying to go with this is not only with the echo chamber effect as far as like the the marketplace of ideas and whatnot, but also with discovery. And I'm just curious about both of those things. Uh, it's a great question. Um, uh, you know, we are not a recommendation product. We are not in the business of saying, here, here are some things, here's the feed that we think you should look at. Um, search mm-hmm. first and foremost is answering to the user. Um, and uh, uh, in that sense, um, you know, we are not like a social media company that can get you um, into these, uh, you know, into these, they're called filter bubbles, um, where mm-hmm. you only see certain points of view and stuff uh, and, and things of that, um, of that nature. That's number one. The second point is, um, humbly, we don't pretend that we know what is right for the whole world. And part of the reason for making it easy to do things like preferences is Mm -hmm. people know best in terms of what they're going to consume. Um, The likelihood, say, that an ultra-left-leaning person um, in the United States is going to go look at Fox News just because it showed up in a search engine list, let's face it, it's not really going to happen. And vice versa. Probably not. Um, and uh, not unless you're taking a victory lap. <laughs> and you know, so from that perspective, we are like we are about we are about serving the user. And I would worry more about it if we were a social media company or we were busy making um, recommendations. We do think about um, you know discovery. Um, we want to make it easy for people to do things like discover small merchants in a weird way. The kind of features that people end up asking us for are things like being able to turn off Walmart, turn off Amazon from their search results. So they actually see more, uh, you know, more small merchants and things like that. And we're continuously working on tech that's going to make it easier uh, to discover these kinds, these kinds of merchants. Um, but as I said, my fundamental thing is like search engines do, should not pretend to be gods um, and claim that there is one absolute ranking for every person on the planet. Um, and so we try our best to be user-focused in areas. As, as I said, when you look for a product on Neva, you're going to see a lot of sites that have reviews. Um, but beyond that, we sort of put you back in charge of your search experience. Okay. And then how do you go about verifying some of the sources, the search results that do pop up uh, given a specific query? Um, because uh, as anybody who's done any type of shopping, I mean, Christmas time is coming up around here and you're looking for any type of gifts, like you are just bombarded with a bunch of stuff that is not really relevant to your to your search. Maybe or you're looking for health information. You can't really like sift through the 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 stuff that is like trying to like uh, serve their own interests and the 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 things that you're actually looking for that are actually relevant and you know have informational content. So how does the verification process work for you? Uh, so this is what you know. This is what search engines do for a living. And so um, the process of uh, uh, figuring out quality first starts with writing uh, you know what we call rater guidelines. Um, mm-hmm. These are guidelines that are then um, that 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 then go to people. 
that are trained uh, to, you know, to, to look at sites and evaluate quality. Um, and we use that, combine it with user input uh, to figure out um, um, how we think about, uh, you know, how we think about quality. And there are a whole, whole set of other signals, including things like what are authoritative sites saying. Um, uh, and then we also have used external folks, raiders, basically giving them guidelines to be mm-hmm. able to say things like, yes, this is a reputable nonprofit, um, or yes, this is a government website. Um, and so this is at the heart of what we do in terms of creating a good search engine. All right. Um, and But you do, uh, Neva does uh, work with or use other external service providers like Bing and Apple Maps, do you not? Or weather apps? That is stuff. correct. Um, how, that is correct. So uh, just the, the, the bluntest question is, uh, what's in it for them? Um, they're not getting user data, I would imagine. Are they getting a cut of the revenue? Um, or like, how does this partnership kind of work from, because I mean, Bing and, and Apple Maps, they're fantastic products, but uh, obviously they're not just uh, born out of altruism. Oh, so this is, we use them as a SaaS service, um, okay. meaning that it is like buying compute on AWS or on Azure. Um, so we pay them for this. We pay them for the search queries that uh, uh, we issue or the maps that, uh, you know, uh, that we show. We never share any user data um, with them. All of Neva's users say look like uh, a, a single endpoint to, mm-hmm. uh, uh, to both Apple and to Microsoft and also to people like Yelp that we get data from. So it is a strictly commercial relationship. Okay. Um, is there um, a, uh, a proprietary tech stack in the works for Neva? 100%. Maybe? Yeah? The big thing that we are very proud of is outside of Google uh, and Bing, we run the largest search system on the planet. Mind you, this is with a 50% team, not a 5,000 or a 50,000 person, um, person team. Uh, mm-hmm. Our crawl, uh, you know, is running at several hundred million pages uh, pages a day. Our index has billions of pages. Um, we have made big investments in large language models that are a set of really exciting changes that are going to use the power of AI to make search even better. That we are uh, that we are working on, and many of like the premium features that you see um, on uh, on on Neva, um, the things that I told you about, whether it's a product query, whether it's a health query. Um, mm-hmm. or a recipe query, um, or a travel query, like tomato soup, for example, will bring up like this beautiful immersive experience on Neva. Um, so all of those are uh, powered by our own stack. We're very proud of the work that we have done here with, um, with what I said is a tiny, tiny, tiny team. Sure. Um, well, I do want to. Uh, I mean, Fifty persons is is definitely tiny, uh, but it's still very impressive, nevertheless. Uh, g- given that when did you launch? You launched in, in Europe just recently, and you went live right around the time the pandemic kicked off. Did you not? That's right. We did. So Neva has been an interesting journey in terms of a team and setting up. Um, and so we launched in the U.S. roughly like like July, uh, you know, last year. Um, okay. And then we took our time. Uh, to launch in Europe, which in retrospect, in my mind, was a mistake because we did 10 times as well um, just in France, UK, and Germany as we did in the US. And the US is a lot larger in terms of population. There is this hunger for privacy, hunger for a non-Google product in Europe that honestly is quite a bit higher than what it is in the US. Um, but you know, partly driven by the results that we saw, we are rapidly expanding to things like other English-speaking countries, mm-hmm. uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, 
also to Spain, uh, and then India is coming soon, and then more countries from uh, Western Europe. Uh, and so, yes, trying to do all of this, our team is like 55, 60 people, um, is, uh, is quite a fun challenge. How many subscribers do you have at the moment? Our uh, monthly users are some, you know, depends on the month. It's uh, somewhere on the order of 750,000 um, monthly users that, uh, mm-hmm. that, that sort of come to Neva every, um, every month. Um, we launched our subscriptions um, only uh, in February of this year in the U.S., and we only recently launched in Europe. Um, mm-hmm. And so our subscribers are in the, in, in, they are in the thousands. Uh, and, uh, um, and so it's been a process of uh, first rolling out the product. So far, our focus has been on user growth, even though with now um, the macro changes, um, we want to make sure that we are also growing our, uh, you know, growing our subscriber base. It is starting um, with a, it's starting on a low number, uh, but progress over the past uh, few months has been pretty, um, pretty rapid. On mm-hmm. uh, iOS in the United States, for example, something like 5 to 7% of people that download the app are actually signing up for the subscription as well. Uh, so we feel like we're in a good place to hit like that first 1 million ARR and then the 10 million ARR um, mm-hmm. in relatively short time. All right. Well, uh, how, uh, speaking of user growth, I wanted to ask you about how you approach user acquisition. I would imagine that uh, standard channels like Facebook and Google ads are not something that you can use due to ethical concerns. Maybe I'm wrong, but how do you approach user, user acquisition? So we are not against advertising. Uh, it just turns out that neither uh, you know, Google search and uh, mm-hmm. Facebook are very inefficient channels for user acquisition. A lot of our user growth is actually driven by earned media. Um, mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, I, I get out there a lot. Uh, and uh, when uh, Neva launched in Germany, for example, we were covered by close to uh, 100, 100 news outlets, which is remarkable for a tiny, tiny company. Uh, so a lot of our growth is earned media, is, uh, is word of mouth, uh, driven mm-hmm. by what the product is. Um, we are also embarked on a series of partnerships um, with privacy-minded companies. We have a wonderful partnership with Dashlane. Um, I think that uh, along with a private search engine, a password manager is a fundamental tool in today's you know, in today's world. Um, it's otherwise just too hard to figure out how to interact with all the hundreds of sites that we interact with. So we have a great partnership with them. We are in conversations with um, um, other players um, like VPN providers, uh, private mail, folks like Proton, uh, so partnerships is um, is another way uh, in which we try to get uh, in which we try to get out there. Um, as I said, we are not anti ads. Um, we do invest a small amount in app install ads on both iOS and uh, and Android. On mm-hmm. Android, we have not even launched premium uh, our premium product yet. That's coming out in a few weeks. Um, so, but most of our growth is driven by partnerships and by word of mouth. And by the way, this is very very similar to Google's growth trajectory. At the end of 1999, Google had 10,000 queries a day. At the end of 2000, thanks to the AOL and Yahoo partnerships, they had 10 million queries um, a day. So traditionally, search has been built on the back of a great product, but also um, just a lot of partnerships. All right, fair enough. And um, so how um, how did you end up um, deciding on the subscription model? Um, for Neva. I think that's also fascinating. So you have a monthly, uh, there's also, I believe, a free version that gives you, I think it's up to 50 queries that's a right, month. That's right. That's right. Um, how, what was the, the decision-making process that went into that? 
The motivation basically was direct user alignment. We wanted to create a product in which uh, um, we were responsible only to the users. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, we initially started out um, and then we did a bunch of research on what's like a subscription amount that people will feel good about. We mm -hmm. also decided to create a bundle um, where with the Neva Premium subscription, you also get things like a choice of a password manager to use, a choice of a VPN uh, to use. So there's a lot that is packed into that 50 pounds, $50 um, a year uh, subscription. Um, okay. And it was picked mostly for uh, um, long-term alignment um, with our with our uh, with with our users, um, who are also our customers. Um, we do have a free version. We are a freemium product. Um, it is uh, it is free to try. It's uh, it has pretty generous limits uh, in terms of number of queries and and things like that. But things like the um, the uh, like the data connections, being able to connect. Um, your Google and your Slack and your other accounts, some of those are restricted in the free version. That's basically what you get when you go to the premium version. You get a bundle of products that are going to help you overall um, with privacy and utility on the um, internet. And then you also unlock a set of product features within Neva. All right. And so... I have a question about, uh, like, with the subscription model and how it's aligning with the users and stuff, uh, like, how big of an influence um, do does user feedback have on you? I mean, you're in the very, the fledgling stages of, like, building uh, building Neva, and I'm just curious, like, how much of an impact do they, do their decisions actually have on your decisions to further innovate? They have a lot of impact. We look at a lot of user feedback, um, and we... You know, product features they come from they come from the suggestions of uh, of our users. Uh, you know, there is also a fair amount with respect to what is a search engine that is pretty standard, and a lot of our work is making sure um, that we satisfy that we satisfy those things. Um, but we are in close touch with our users. We have a vibrant Slack community where people give us a ton of feedback um, about uh, about uh, you know about our features. Mm -hmm. um, so it's. Um, it's a pretty close-knit community of passionate users. All right. Um, so I do have a question, though. Um, one of the things that, uh, that got you, that drove you away from Google to begin with, and one of the things that you, I think you really relish about Neva is just the spirit of innovation. That's um, right. And how you are able, you have the freedom to, to basically create whatever you want um, based on user feedback, of course. Um, and so... With uh, regard to what we discussed earlier about how um, your reasonable reasonable decisions could have poor outcomes, what what are some some things that you've learned from your time at Google and applying them to Neva that um, you could uh, that that are in place to support innovation, um, but also preventing against maybe poor outcomes? I mean, it is. Um, uh like even in the context of a company like Neva, um, where the focus very much is on the user and how to do right by them, um, there are still lots of questions to be uh, to be to be decided um, when it comes to um, what is okay to use. I'll give you a simple thing, mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, and and you tell me what the right outcome is. Uh, whenever you make a request to another website, your um, IP address. Uh, gets sent as part of that uh, part of that request is basically an identity that your internet service provider has given to your uh, um, your your account with them. Um, mm -hmm. This IP address, for um, example, 
uh, can be used to figure out pretty accurately the location of the person that is issuing the request. The, like the IP address for my house basically doesn't really change. Um, and uh, um, lots of sites use this to figure out everything from uh, what country is this person from. Like Netflix will use it to determine, are you coming from the UK or are you coming from, let's say, India? Mm -hmm. um, so we agonize over things like, is it okay for us to use uh, IP address in order to figure out your approximate, uh, approximate location? Um, we then have discussions about whether it's okay to log the IP address. Because as soon as you log the IP address, that means that there is a record that a query came from a particular IP address. For what it's worth, we don't log IP addresses, but we do use it um, in order to figure out um, what kind of local results to serve somebody. So there are a ton of decisions like this um, that have to be made um, about how is a product going to behave? Um, what kind of data can it use? Um, for example, we will never pass IP address to any of our third-party providers, not to you know, not to Apple, not to Yelp. Um, that's because, as I said, it's pretty much uh, close to being personally identifiable. Um, and so these are all like the different things that we keep in mind um, when we when we talk about that North Star focus on the user. There are just a ton of these sorts of product decisions, um, and pretty much all of the decisions come to me and Vivek. Mm -hmm. so that we ensure that continuity of decision-making and long-term alignment with our users. All right. Um, well, I'm, I've only got a couple more questions for you, Sridhar. This has been a fascinating discussion, um, and I do appreciate that you didn't uh, put me in the grinder too much with that last moral dilemma, because um, I understand like these decisions... Uh, yeah. Do you, do you really want quality? Do you want a good use uh, uh, result, or do you want privacy? Like these are these are things that uh, each and every individual has to kind of decide for themselves. Um, but um, so I want to kind of to to wrap up and discuss a little bit about the funding and your expansion plans because you just rolled out into Europe earlier uh, yep. recently. Um, you've also uh, amassed, I think, uh, raised about a hundred million in U.S. in That's funding, right. That's um, right. and uh, you're. You're taking on Google, essentially. Not only, but essentially, your former employer. Uh, you've obviously got some inside information, which certainly can't hurt. Um, but it's hard to get more David versus Goliath than that, um, especially in the digital space. Um, and we do need to mention, well, you actually did mention um, that after you left Google, you joined up uh, um, with, uh, you went to Greylock Partners, a very influential VC firm. I believe they're based in Massachusetts. Um, and you're still a partner there. Um and I'm, I, I would imagine that that familiarity between you and the partners there kind of helped you convince or at least gave you enough time, ear time with them um, to, to explain the pitch. Because I couldn't imagine that many, and maybe I'm seeing this incorrectly, but that a lot of people would think that that is a wise bet to take on such an established incumbent like Google. So I'm just curious, what is the pitch that, that has made investors so eager to, to jump on board? Uh, one of the largest businesses and problems that there is. Um, this is a daily use product for pretty much every person on the planet mm -hmm. um, and uh, commands a market capitalization of close to $2 trillion um, and an incredibly accomplished team that has helped build many aspects of Google. Um, it is still daunting um, for people to consider something like this. So, you know, we have very much taken like this iterative approach of build a product release, grow the user base, grow the subscriber base, 
Um, there's, as I said, especially because of um, the changing macro climate, there is an increased emphasis and sense of urgency uh, from us about uh, um, about growing the subscriber base quickly, about also making uh, making money. Um, and so, you know, these are folks that uh, care deeply about the problem, know the team intimately. I work with Bill Corden, who's on my board for close to a decade. He and I joined Google on the same day, and now he's on my um, he's on my board. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is actually the kind of bet that uh, VCs relish with the right partner, um, because the outcome uh, can be so disproportional um, with even a small investment. Well, fair enough. Well. What exactly is then success for Neva? Is it to, uh, to so to speak, to to sack Rome, to bring down the empire? No. Um, what what is, what is success then to you? Uh, our first focus right now is how do we get to a million subscribers? Um, what does that take? And then it's going to be five. Um, and then it's going to be how do we make sure that we are cash flow positive? These are all modest goals. Um, mm-hmm. An outcome in which something like one to two percent of the United States and Western Europe um, are subscribers of Neva. Now we are talking, you know, something on the order of 20, 25 million subscribers has the potential uh, to make us cash flow positive because we are very lean. Uh, we don't have to reinvent um, uh, everything and we are heavy users of efficient cloud infrastructure. So those are kind of the goals that we have in mind. Um, I have a lot of fondness for Google. I think it's an amazing company, but in a weird way, I think Neva existing pushing the state of the art, showing an alternate model actually forces Google also to innovate more. So in a weird way, I think of us as being very complementary to to Google. Um, And our goal, uh, first and foremost, is to create a viable company that lots of people will use and say, you know, this is um, a product that I pay for, but I'm very happy to pay for it. Think HBO, think Netflix. Netflix didn't come out and say, hey, we are here to put broadcast TV out of business. They came out and said, we want to create a great product. Remember, they came as a mm-hmm. replacement for like blockbuster late fees. Um, and so there are a set of people that care about search um, that are trying out Neva, that are becoming subscribers, and we want to use that momentum to create a better and better product. And that's our focus. Well, Sridhar Ramaswamy, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been a fascinating discussion. Uh, Thank you again. Thank you so much, Scott. Love this discussion. Appreciate the time.